Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray with you now that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand this, your very word, so that we would be spoken to by you. Lord, apart from your Spirit enlightening the eyes of our heart, we we don't understand the Scriptures, we don't understand the things of God. So this prayer of illumination that we offer week after week is no no mere formality, but rather a desperate prayer that you would be among us. Father, let us understand your Scriptures and let us move towards your Christ, who is pleased to welcome us by grace, by virtue of his crucifixion and resurrection. Do a good work now, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Over the years, I hope that I'm becoming, bit by bit, by trial and error, somewhat, at least, more aware of my strengths and weaknesses as a pastor. And as I try to discern what my strengths and weaknesses are, there are different ways in which I try to work on them in various methods. So, Whatever I perceive is my strengths, and I'm blessed to be on a pastoral staff and a church staff where different people are doing different things. I want to be able to spend most of my time on things that I consider my strengths. And also, I don't want to let my strengths just sit there. I want to work on them so those strengths get better. And then on the other hand, there are weaknesses. And so over the years, as I try to grow in self-awareness as a pastor, there are a couple different things that I do with my weaknesses. Sometimes with my weaknesses, over time, I try to address them so that they can get better. You may be surprised to know, or you may not be surprised to know, that administration and organization has been a struggle for me, and it's a learned behavior. In particular, my first church, right out of seminary that I pastored, I was a tsunami of disaster when it came to organization and administration, 
and I thought it was cool. I even took pride in how bad I was. I was pastor slow motion walking away from the church building set on fire by my lack of administrative prowess behind me. I said to myself, I'm just going to preach sermons and love people. And administration and organization, that's worldly. I don't need to do any of that. And so one time I was with a group of pastors, and I was kind of bragging to these pastors. Yeah, everybody knows at my church that I'm horrible with organization and administration. Everybody thinks it's hilarious. After that group conversation, an older and wiser passed me, took, took me aside, and this pastor said, Jim, this is just a guess. I don't know your church, but I could say pretty confidently that you're the only one that's laughing about your lack of organizational mojo. And especially if you're a solo pastor, which I was, solo pastors need to get better at administration and organization. You can't just let it be bad. I said, okay. And from that moment on, I tried to work on administration and organization. But then also with my weaknesses sometime, I just come to the place where I say, this is never going to be a strength of mine and or I don't have the bandwidth to be able to really bring this weakness up. So I need to release it and look for other people to be able to do these things. And one of the things in this direction is marriage counseling. When husband and wife, when I'm talking to somebody whose marriage is distressed and I'm trying to, to help them and bring them into better places, I'm really glad that we're partnered with Philadelphia Renewal Network, PRN, a Christian counseling center in Philadelphia where I'm good for a couple of sessions to meet with couples that are distressed. But after that, I say, hey, there's this great counseling center has much more experienced counselors in working with these things. And hopefully I tell myself, in large part, I'm not very good at marriage counseling because I just haven't been trained in it. I probably only have had maybe 60 to 90 minutes total of family counseling and marriage counseling in seminary. But then on the other hand, there are people that devote entire graduate programs, including in our church, to figuring out how to do family counseling and marriage counseling and counseling hours and credentialing processes. Don't get me wrong, I care about marriages. I, I love doing premarital counseling, but I just need to be realistic that when it comes to counseling distressed marriages, my, my success rate, it's not very good. And so I need help when it comes to getting people the counseling that they need for their marriages. And apart from having a larger to toolbox for me, I can get lost in the he, he said, she said, back and forth of marriage disputes. And there are a lot of yes, well sorts of situations that I really don't know how to deal with when it comes to marriage. So one spouse says to the other, I hate how you're so withdrawn. Yes, well, I wouldn't be so withdrawn if you weren't so critical. Yes, well, I wouldn't be so critical if you tried harder. Yes, well, I would try harder if you weren't unhappy all the time. Yes, well, I would try harder and try to serve you and try to be happier about it, but you're so withdrawn. And then it's just back, I feel like I'm at Wimbledon, back and forth and back and forth. 
and I don't know which end is up. I don't know how to help. But then there's another aspect, too, which I don't think is entirely on me. In a lot of marriage conflicts, and sometimes there's a clear person that's in the wrong and another person that's clearly innocent, but then other times in marriage conflicts, there's a lot of two-way streets, and there's fault on both sides. I'll say to one person, a husband or a wife, hey, we're talking about your spouse's issues, and I'm pressing your spouse on some things, but over here, for you, can we talk about some things that maybe you need to work on? Things that you could have done differently. Things that maybe you have done wrong. Ways in which you have sinned against your husband and wife. And over and over again, this is the response that I get. Jim, how dare you? How dare you bring up stuff on my end? Haven't you been listening to a word that I've told you in these many hours of counseling sessions about how horrible my husband or my wife is? I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to own anything until my husband or wife does. And then maybe, but not until then. I discover in marriage counseling situations, and understandably so, when we're in situations of a lot of hurt and harm and back and forth, we don't want to own our mistakes. We don't want to own our sin. One more story for you. My previous church, I was preaching on a Sunday, and there was a dear elderly woman at church that I was good friends with and her husband. One time when I was preaching, she was weeping for most of the sermon. And that's actually not super unusual. Most of the time, though, when I see somebody crying, when I preach, if I know that person a little bit, I'll have some idea of, okay, maybe this is affecting this person in this way. I, I think I get it. But on the other hand, it's a sinking feeling when you're a preacher and you see somebody crying and you have no idea why. And this was one of those situations. Did I say something wrong? Did I inadvertently hurt this person that I love so much? I have no idea. So after the service, I found this person and I said, hey, I don't want to intrude. It's up to you if you'd want to have a conversation right now. But I saw that during the sermon, you were shaken up. Do you want to talk about it? How are you doing? And this woman said, I'm not doing well, but I'm doing okay. And she said, I am beginning to understand that for following Jesus, I used to think that following Jesus was working on all of these little sins over a long period of time. She said, now I'm starting to realize it's not working on all these multitude of mistakes and sins. It's just two or three. But they're two or three big ones. Just two or three sinful patterns of heart and habit that crop up over and over again, decade after decade, and cause a lot of harm. And she said, that's what I'm seeing, those two or three. And I'm still struggling with these two or three things. But the good news is that now in my fifth decade of being a Christian, of following Jesus... I am just beginning to own these sins and to know Jesus' forgiveness. 
And I told this friend of mine that is so wise and so mature. And on the inside, I was saying, you're my hero. I want to be like you when I grow up. And we have an invitation here this morning to own our junk, to reckon with our sin, but also to know God's cleansing and God's newness at the same time in Jesus. So two parts from here for the rest of the sermon. I want to talk about what we don't know and then also what we need. What we don't know and then what we need. And sorry to do this to you, but what I'm going to say right now has nothing to do kind of with the introduction that I just said. Now for something completely different. I want to talk just for a few minutes about doctrine of Scripture and our understanding of the Bible. I think it was the last sermon in November before going into Advent, earlier in this Genesis sermon series, I gave a whole sermon about how do we understand the authority of the scriptures. And I said that, well, it's God's word. It's, it's infallible. It's authoritative for our lives. We're going to come back to some of these themes using this passage as a text, a test case, a test text passage. And so what this is here, it's an introduction to the flood narrative. We're going to be in Lent starting next Sunday. We're going to stop for a moment our Genesis sermon series and talk about different practices of presence as part of our represence initiative. This introduces the flood. We'll get back to it. But speaking of the represence initiative, one of the things that we're trying to do in this 24-month push for Liberty Collingswood as we relaunch our church into a post-COVID and post-Christian world is that I want people at Liberty Collingswood to be resilient followers of Jesus not buffered around by various currents, but instead stayed on Jesus and stayed on God's word. Even if you're exploring Christian faith, I want you to wrestle, and I pray that you would wrestle and come to a point of faith. Welcome. Thank you that you're here watching online, but then come to a place of deep conviction about Jesus so that you'll be set up by God's grace for the long term. And a big part of that, being a resilient disciple, not being pulled by this current or that current, occasionally when culture feels like it's pulling you over here, you're okay saying, I'll, I'll be over here instead because I feel like this is where the Bible is putting me. Trusting in God's word is such a huge part of that. And this is a really hard Bible passage where critics of the Bible will say, okay, you're trying to trust the Bible as God's word. The Bible is a mess. You can't really trust it. Look at what's going on in this passage. And I'll tell you, when I was reading commentaries, studying this passage, I encountered something that I have never seen before in a commentary. I'm going on 21 years of regular preaching in churches throughout the career of my ministry so far. Give or take, maybe I read 1,000 pages of commentaries a year about different parts of the Bible. In all of those thousands of pages, I've never seen a comment like this before about a Bible passage. One commentator said about these verses, the meaning of this text is disputed, and likely the effort taken in understanding it will not be matched by gains for preaching in the listening community. What this guy is saying is, this is such a difficult passage that it's not worth preaching on, because it's too hard. And I read that as a challenge. I was like, oh, no, he didn't. Here I go. But we're going to try to wrestle honestly with the scriptures here. In eight verses there are no less than three problems. And so we, we don't often go into the kitchen of biblical interpretation, but it seems appropriate for this Sunday, for this context, and for this passage. 
Problem number one, verse six. A critic might say, okay, church, you have confessed that God is immutable, that God doesn't change. God is, in the words of the Apostle James in the New Testament, our Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning. What do you have in verse 6? And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Seems like he's taking a mulligan, saying, I'm going to bring a flood and start over. And you say God doesn't change? And you say that the scriptures are an inspired word of God? God breathed? The scriptures don't even paint a coherent picture of God at all. It's just one fairy tale over here, one fairy tale over there. Problem number two. And we'll get back to that first one. The Nephilim in verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, in the original language here in Hebrew, Nephilim means giants, but most modern translations won't translate the word into giants, but leave it in its original Hebrew and transliterate it, take the same sounds and give characters in our alphabet Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? Are they like 10 or 20 feet tall when they're giant? Just how, how big are we talking here? The word Nephilim only occurs one other time in the entire rest of the scriptures. And it seems like that's talking about a different group than the one we have here. And then even in terms of relationship with this passage, how do the Nephilim connect with other groups in this passage? Are they on their own? Are they... When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, are the Nephilim the same thing as the sons of God in this passage? Or are they the sons of the sons of God? Or are they the sons of the sons of God that also seem to be the mighty men of renown at the end of the passage? Or is it more that it's just a drive-by sighting where you see the Nephilim over here, but we're talking about other folks for the rest of the time, like, oh, honey, there's some Nephilim. That's nice, dear. And we just keep driving. It's weird. Problem number three, which is actually the biggest problem of this passage. Verses one and two. And maybe you wondered about this when I was reading it first time through. What is going on here? The sons of God and the daughters of men. When, ba when, man, began to, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and, his daughters, were and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. I'll give you the three main schools of interpretation of what this means, and none of them are without pretty severe problems. So, who are the sons of God that took and married the daughters of men? Well, they're angels, or they're some semi-divine demigod sorts of figures, and you have this juxtaposition the sons of God and the daughters of men, they seem to be different classes or kinds of beings. So, of course, sons of God, they've got to be angels or demigods. But what are some problems with this view, at least in my mind? That sounds like myth. If these are demigods marrying human beings, Jewish people and Christians for millennia have confessed that as early as Genesis and all the way through, this is real history that happened in flesh and blood. And 
this sounds more like Greek mythology if it's angels and demigods. This is Leda in the swan territory a lot more than human history. That opens us up to saying maybe we can't trust the Bible at all. But then also even on the terms of this passage and the rest of the Bible, sons of God is never used in any other place in the scripture to describe angels or divine beings. And so if this is actually angels or divine beings, sons of God never use that way anywhere else. And there's also a responsibility question. Humanity is punished for what's happening here. And it would seem that it would run against divine justice if these are angels taking human wives, and then it's the human beings that are punished for it. Our God's not like that. So can they really be something other than human beings? Which brings us to number two. Sons of God, daughters of men. These sons of God, they're actually kings. They're rulers. And the strength of this interpretation says, well, okay, we're, we're out of the woods with myth and that sort of thing. And it is true that in the ancient Near East, in various texts, kings and rulers are sometimes called the son of God. But the issue here is that kings are not on the scene in Genesis, and there's no instance, whether within the Bible or outside of the Bible, where sons of God are used in the plural for a group of kings. We haven't seen that anywhere. A descriptor, here come the kings. They are the sons of God. It, it, it sounds like a bad Monty Python skit or song. We are the sons of God. We are mighty, mighty kings. So that would actually be a novelty that you're inserting into the scriptures here. Door number three. These sons of God that are marrying the daughters of men, this is the line of Seth. Now, if you were here last week or go back and listen to the sermon from last time for Genesis chapter 5, or really up so far, Adam and Eve, their first couple of sons, Cain and Abel, didn't go so well. They had another kid named Seth. And then Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy of the image of God persisting generation to generation to generation after the fall. And what you have in Genesis chapter 6 here is the son's of God are the godly line of Seth that are intermarrying with other tribes and peoples, which nicely envisages and predates and previews a concern of ancient Israel later on in the Hebrew scriptures where Israel is said not to, is told by God not to intermarry with the nations. Here is the first instance of that. Advantage here, we're safe from mythology, but then also, do you see where in this passage here, it says that the sons of God are from the line of Seth? It doesn't. So, door number one, door number two, door number three. Relax. For myself, I go with door number three. But this is a sort of passage, and hopefully this is a relevant test case to talk about. When we come to a passage where there are problems in the scriptures, we can go a couple of different ways. Sometimes people will ignite, sometimes people will ignore. And in my opinion, both of those are bad options. Ignite. Oh, you see, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's a big mess. Let's just light the whole thing on fire and not use the Bible as an authority for us anymore. That does not build a resilient disciple of Jesus Christ. And especially in a cultural moment like this, if you're a Christian that at the same time says, 
I'm a follower of Jesus, but the Bible is pretty much a bunch of baloney. You're not going to be a Christian very long. Those days are numbered. Or if you're exploring Christianity and you're told you should give your life to Jesus, but you can't trust the sacred scriptures of the church at all, you're probably not going to get all the way there. I don't like that option. But then on the other hand, there's the ignore. And I'll call this a venerable hyper-conservatism where you'll look at a problem in the Bible, like the ones that we have here, and go, la, 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 not a problem. It's obvious. These are the sons of Seth. Why, why are we even saying that there's any issue here? My concern with that, even though I get why you might want to go in that direction, is that if your doctrine of Scripture is such where you'll never admit that there's any question that we have trouble getting an absolutely certain answer to, my concern is that you're only one blog post or one podcast away from a Christian that's deconverted, and then you're shattered, and then you're gone. My dad was a structural engineer. He was an engineer. I was talking to somebody yesterday, big science person. My mom was a nurse. I was a philosophy major. My brother was a French literature major. One of my sisters was a drama major, and the other sister was a women's studies major. So all of that math and science stuff skipped a generation completely. What my dad did as an engineer was he was in a company that designed software for structural analysis to make sure that things stood up. So whether it's skyscrapers, his software was used to make sure this, so this skyscraper is structurally sound, or bridges, or offshore oil platforms. This probably didn't happen in your household, but whenever I was growing up and there was a news show on, and, you know, 6 o'clock news, 10 o'clock news, 11 o'clock news, and there would be this aerial view of a bridge that collapsed or a skyscraper that collapsed or a drilling platform that collapsed, my dad would call the office and say, was that one of ours? And as far as I know, it was never, never one of his that, that let it fall down. But my dad will tell you that if you want to build a structure that will stand and endure and be resilient, you actually need to build a tiny bit of flex where it can breathe just a little bit and stand. Now, do I believe the Bible is the word of God and absolutely true at the literal level and everything that it intends? Yes. But does that mean that I can give you a bulletproof interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, the sons of God? Maybe not. I can give you my best guess. But I hope and pray that these sorts of discussions will actually make you more resilient disciples that will trust the word of God and say, I will be here even if everything else is in other places. And take courage here too. You hear, you'll hear a lot of critics say the Bible is full of contradictions. To me, they're all small potatoes. I have never met a Christian that is deconverted because they say, I just could never get over the Nephilim. Or Genesis 6, 1 and 2, that was fatal for me. All of these things that people say are contradictions, they're relatively really small things. So if you go into the New Testament, there are a couple different accounts of how Judas dies, the one that betrays Jesus. But there are ways to explain it. There's a little bit of question about one of the names of one of the 12 disciples. You hear the big print, the Bible is full of contradictions, but the small print 
is that it's a handful of things that are actually really minor. So I want you to be able to take deep confidence and deep conviction in the scriptures instead. And also, here's maturity. If we can move as we look at the scriptures from mistake to mystery, God is bigger than we are. That doesn't mean I have to have an absolutely bulletproof explanation for everything. God, immutable. What do you do with God regretting in verse 6 that he had made human beings? I'll say, well, the scripture teaches that God is eternal, unchangeable, God only wise, our Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no shadow of changing. And God has love, feels love, feels joy, feels anger. And you might say, Jim, are you able to be immutable and feel love, joy, and anger at different points? I'll say, I can't, but you know what? I'm also not Trinitarian. I am not three gyms in one gym. I am not the creator of the heavens and earth. And I think it's actually an act of faithful humility to say, our God is a really big God. We can have confidence to worship this one as we encounter this God through the scriptures. And if we're finite beings, it's fitting for us to admit our finitude. That's what God says in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. We are flesh. That involves weakness. That involves finitude. That involves death. That involves sin. How do we own it? So that's wrestling with some doctrine of Scripture stuff. I hope it's helpful to make you a convinced disciple of Jesus Christ or as you move in that direction. Now let's talk about what we need. How do we own our sin? In Genesis chapter 6. So what this passage is doing, it's the final bridge piece from fall to flood. This is the beginning of the flood narrative. How did we get here from fall when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit all the way here to flood? How did it get so bad that God said, I will bring a flood of judgment upon the world? And the answer is verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a classic statement of human sin. This is a classic statement of what theologians have called total depravity. We have an incorrigible inward bent towards sin and selfishness. It's original sin that passes from generation to generation to generation. The Apostle Paul says that we have fallen in Adam. And to me, this checks out. Parents of little kids, you don't have to teach your kids. I'll put it this way. Your kids don't have to be told to take their toys from their brothers and sisters. They just do. But you do have to teach your kids not to take the toys from their siblings or at a play day. We are born one way. Selfishness is natural behavior. Altruism is learned behavior. We're made in the image of God still to this day. But we are broken and fallen in sin. 
And in a lot of halls of social sciences today, something like that is disputed and disregarded. But do you know who still gets it? Our artists. Let's say, yeah, as human beings, we are deeply broken. Robert Stone, one of my favorite authors who only died a couple of years ago, put it this way. We carry nemesis inside us, but we are not excused. We carry nemesis inside us. You might wonder, is news like this, is it harsh or is it helpful? Well, I'll say it's both. It's both harsh, but then also helpful. On one hand, if self-esteem is the number one value that we want everybody to have all the time, everything is awesome, this might not fit with that. But I'd come back a second time and even nuance it and say, if we just tell everybody that they're awesome all the time, when they actually mess up, they're going to be shattered. And the Bible has nuance here, too. I've talked for the past couple of weeks. Sin is everywhere, not just you. It's all of us. So the world is not all my fault. It's not all your fault. Your world is not all your fault. You've been sinned against, and you've contributed your own sin and your own mess. And the Bible is exquisite in being able to tease out sin and fault and error across the board. And remember, we're bent towards sin, but we are still made in the image of God. Harsh but helpful. If you're sitting in a doctor's office waiting anxiously on test results. How many of us would say, Doc, if it's bad news, don't tell me. Only tell me good news. If it's true, you want to hear the bad news. If it's true, the bad news is actually good. And in my opinion, if we lose a sense of sin, that's disastrous for us, both culturally and personally. It's disastrous culturally. Without a healthy sense of sin, we are either, culturally speaking, too judgy or too squishy. Too judgy. And this might be counterintuitive, but bear with me for just a moment here. The Christian story goes like this. Sin is real and God is judge. Sin is real and God is judge, so that there is a sense that we can relax. And yes, as Christians, we apply the scriptures to all of life. Do we try to make wise and humble discernments about what is sin and what is not, both within ourselves and more broadly? Of course we do. But we also recognize that we are not judge, jury, and executioner. God is. From thence we confess, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And it's not only Christians, but also secular authors that have seen, hey, if we lose the concept of sin, and if there's no God that judges, we become the judge. We are our own judge, jury, and executioner all the time towards other people. A secular writer who is not a person of faith recently wrote and said, wait a second, if we move past religion, we are losing some social good. It was put like this. At its best, religion confers relief by withholding final judgments until another time, until eternity. The new secular religions unleash dissatisfaction, not toward the possibilities of divine grace or justice, but towards one fellow citizens who become embodiments of sin, deplorables or enemies. We take on the mantle for ourselves of judge, jury, and executioner for others. And make no mistake, too, 
any view of human progress or progressivism that loses sight of human sin tends towards totalitarianism. It will be blind to its own hubris. It will be blind to its own abuses of power. In the mid-20th century, during and after World War II, there was a public Christian theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr who said, I'm not so sure our world is going in the right direction. He said, the course of history has proved the earlier identification of growth and progress to be false. Early 1900s, we have technology, we have science, the world's just going to get better and better and better. But then Hitler and World War II. It destroyed the myth of progress, but then the myth of progress was being rebuilt. The Renaissance and Enlightenment produced a philosophy that assumes all development means the advancement of the good. It does not recognize that every heightened potency of human existence may also represent a possibility of evil. The symbol for this difference is that in the Christian story, the end of history is both judgment and fulfillment. The modern conception sees the end as only fulfillment. It's only good news. Life's just going to keep getting more awesome and awesome. But we've lost sight of sin. So we can become, on one hand, more judgy if we lose the concept of God as judge over sin, but then also more squishy at the same time. If there's no such thing as wrong in sin, we are stuck with each other as permissive parents all the time. Years and years ago, when my wife Emily and I were, were living in a different place and our kids were younger, we went out to lunch with another family. And angers are not perfect, but we, we had drilled in some restaurant manners that sometimes our kids would follow through on, other times would not. We had the drawing bags, we had all of the things to try to keep them quiet. But this other family, they were friends of ours. We loved them, bless their heart. But they were super permissive. And so we were trying to keep our kids under control at lunch, but their toddlers were running around the restaurant. And the parents were saying, hey, stop. Hey, don't do that. Oh, come back. But they were literally climbing on other chairs and tables and did everything except grab food off of other patrons' plates. And of course, when the bill came, I grabbed it, and the other husband and wife said, thank you, Jim. And I was like, no, thank you. And it was not the case on the way home that I told Emily, I am intrigued and impressed by the parenting style of this other couple. It was the opposite. They've got to keep their kids under control. They've got to tell them no and mean it. They're not serving their kids well to say no, 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 but then underneath, whatever you do is fine. My kids are angels all the time. But that's sometimes the world that we're moving into. And in the name of freedom, we can say, just serve your own desires all the time, and it'll be great as long as you don't hurt other people. Even though, in my opinion, there's a lot of fuzziness built into that proviso. You can get away with a lot within there. Another conversation. But is it freedom or is it really just indulgence? And if my view of the human person is that I have a right to indulge every desire in total freedom all the time, I need to understand that, yeah, there are antecedents here in the West, but basically nobody has thought that in the history of the world. 
This is a new view of human beings. Andrew Sullivan is a contemporary writer, also somebody who's not a Christian, but said, life is going in crazy directions. This is not, for example, the ancient world of the Greco-Romans. He put it this way. For most of the ancients, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and material needs. Freedom rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control, restraint, and education into virtue. The ancients would look at our freedom and see license, chaos, and slavery to desire. They'd predict misery, not happiness, to be the result. And I look around at our world and say, what do you know? We're miserable. And cultures that lose the vocabulary of sin and wrong and evil lose the ability to describe their own reality. In my view, the world doesn't make sense without the scriptures. We are grieving here this morning, and Amy's going to pray for it later, the invasion of Ukraine. And more information could come out about this, but at least as I, I read the tea leaves and read the stories, there is one aggressor nation that's in the wrong, preying upon a weaker nation that's vulnerable and in the right. And as human beings, we need the ability courageously to look at Russia and Russia's leader and say, hey, our hands are not clean. Everybody's sinful. But what you're doing is really sinful. That's really bad. That's evil. And those videos like the dad kissing goodbye the daughter as they flee to safety, as the dad turns with a rifle to go defend his homeland, that's the good, that's right, that's noble, that's courageous against evil. The Bible gives you that toolbox. If we lose a sense of sin, it is culturally disastrous. And this is where we'll wrap up. Also personally, if we lose a sense of sin, we are back to the he said, she said all the time. We are back to the Wimbledon of yes, well, yes, well, yes, well, yes, well, all the time. But understand instead, there is a freedom in being able to come to conviction of owning our sin, to be able to say before God and other people, the game is up. I am wrong. This action, this disposition, this habit, it's sin. I need to own it. And like that woman years ago, tearful during the service, what are your two or three deep dispositions of heart and mind and habit and life that you need to stop excusing, that you need to stop blame-shifting for, that you got to stop being blind to, and say, I'm not going to say anymore, that wasn't me, because it was. God doesn't have blinders. That's what he's doing in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And yet God provides a rescuer. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
more than the hope of Noah, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, found favor in the eyes of the Lord and took our sin to the cross, at which we are able to reckon and own our own sin. But as we come to Jesus by faith, knowing that he has paid the penalty for not just some of it, but all of it, not just our recent sins, but our original sin, not just this, but everything. And we're able to receive grace and no cleansing and newness. Own your sin and come to the Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.